on this episode of This Calling. Find people who can be honest with themselves so that they can be honest with you. Welcome to This Calling, conversations about vocation. I'm Chris Arnold. I'm a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. These are the calling stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talk to the Reverend Shanna McCauley. Shanna is a priest in the Episcopal Church, serving as vicar of St. Edward's in Silverton, Oregon. She's also got the cool job title of Village Manager of the St. Edward's Cottages. What's that, you ask? Listen and find out. We talk about her journey from Alaska to Oregon, journalism to ordained ministry, and challenging people's expectations. Here's our conversation. Well, my guest today on This Calling is the Reverend Shanna McCauley. How are you, Shanna? I'm good. It's good to talk. Where are you? You're in somewhere I'm in Oregon. Silverton, Oregon, which is uh, due east of Salem. Okay. And you are a priest there. I am the vicar of St. Edward's, um, which is a small mission. And I am the village manager of the St. Edward's Cottages. What's that? We have four cottages that we have built for homeless women. Um, we are on pause because of coronavirus, but um, we've built four small units for homeless women to live in and help transition into permanent housing. Oh, wow. Well, we'll talk all about that. So you're the village manager. That's, mm-hmm. really, that's a pretty cool title. Yeah. Like you're the mayor of a yeah, very tiny of- town. Mayor McCheese, sort of. <laughs> so uh, you are um, the vicar. Mm-hmm. That means that you have a mission church. Would you explain quickly for listeners who don't know, like what 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 we mean when we say a mission versus a parish and vicar versus rector or other terms that we use for these jobs. So historically, the way that I understood this term um, was that um, mission parishes or mission congregations um, couldn't financially support themselves. Hmm. Um, And that was the division between mission and parish. Um, But St. Edward's has been on its own. I mean, this is true across the country, right, where... um, Dioceses don't have as much money where churches don't have as much money. And so dioceses can't support mission congregations as much. And so St. Edward's has really been on its own for many years, uh, for the most part. The, the bishop has been generous. Um, but for the most part, um, St. Edward's has been financially on its own. Um, and so I've heard of other thresholds like um, average Sunday attendance or um, a full-time versus part-time vicars, rectors, that sort of thing. Um, But um, I'm not sure that we as a church have really decided what mission means these days. Are you full-time there? No, I am. So I've been half-time. I was half-time for nine years, and then we got a grant from the bishop's office for the cottages. And so 
I went up a quarter time last year. So last year I became three quarters time and I am still a three quarters time. So these cottages are, a, are they a diocesan initiative or is it a St. Edward's initiative that is getting funding from the diocese? No, these cottages actually are a community initiative. Um, oh. A wild story, but um, we had been talking about them at St. Edward's for a while about just building tiny homes on our property. Um, we're a really small mission. We have very few people on Sunday and we knew that we had a lot of land and that this was a possibility. This was something we could do and offer, uh, but it didn't really get traction. And then um, I found out about a group in the community that was needing to talk about tiny homes for homeless people. And um, I, <laughs> I got myself an invitation um, <laughs> and um, showed up very strangely at someone's house um, and met up with these women. And um, we worked hard. We changed the law and we, um, found donors and volunteers and, um, hundreds of hours, hundreds of hours of meetings and, um, planning and visiting other places that are doing the same things or similar things. And, um, and so we've, we have raised well over a hundred thousand dollars, um, which is quite a bit higher than our annual budget for St. Edwards. Um, and, um, and then the bishop has supported, um, the bishop has a, a special fund where they support new initiatives and he has supported the salary of the village manager. So the one quarter, one quarter time of my salary um, is being supported by the bishop, bishop's office. Cool. So what does the village manager do? Like what is, what does your day look like or your week? Up to now, it has mostly been construction management, which um, they did not teach me in seminary. Um, <laughs> Um, I, and, and to say that is, um, I hold that lightly because there's been a really generous company, um, in this area. Um, and I'm going to give them a shout out because they have done amazing things, but it's West side drywall and insulation, and they have done all of the construction management. Um, and what I've done is I've held it on the really high level and in making sure that I fill in the gaps as he tells me what he needs. So, um, I make sure that the bills get paid, although there are very few of them because people have been extraordinarily generous. Um, and I make sure that things are proceeding um, and that communication is happening between construction people. Um, and then starting in November, we, we began to, um, the other thing that I've been managing is a group of um, uh, caregivers to go, um, a wrap team to go around the cottages, um, women. So, um, we have a finance person, we have legal people, we have a doctor, we have, um, several counselors and drug and alcohol counselors. Um, we have a social worker. Um, so we have, we have this big group of actually all women kind of accidentally, but, um, all women who, um, are offering their services for free, um, to support these women in their transition. Um, so I have been working with that group. And then um, starting in November, we began to interview women for the cottages. Um, we've learned kind of over time in that hindsight 2020 thing um, that we started interviews too early um, and that we should have waited because um, it's, it's created some challenges that are um, some uh, hopefulness for people that um, 
that they hoped to move in in like November, December. And here we are in May and nobody's moved in yet. So, Hmm. um, so that's been the management piece at this point going forward. It will be checking in with the people who are living in the cottages and um, helping to manage um, the interpersonal conflict that will arise from sharing space because they have their own cottages. And then there's a, uh, room in the church where they have a shower and a bathroom and a kitchenette. And um, I imagine that um, just like any roommates, there will be, you know, the, you left your dirty dishes again, or you took my milk or that sort of thing. So I'll, I'll be managing that and then making sure that they get the services that they need and um, to help them progress through the steps um, so that, um, so that nobody stalls. Cause the, the thing we don't want is to get people in and get them stuck. Um, so (laughs) that's a lot of work. That's very cool. Yeah. And so this is all kind of on hold at the moment because of this coronavirus thing that has everything shut down. Right. So when, right when all this stuff started taking hold was right when we were just about done with construction. So the last bits of construction are being concluded now. Um, painting and um the installed furniture um so some odds and ends um finished carpentry um so that kind of stuff is still happening a little bit but um we can't have we can't interview right now because we can't have people um coming and interaction and then we can't have people move in because they can't move in when no one's there and so yeah now we're on now we're stuck well, so tell me about the trajectory of your priesthood. You weren't always a priest. No, I wasn't. <laughs> um, so I started out um, going to church with my um, my grandma and my mom at the Korean Presbyterian Church um, when I was little, um, and it was a it was a tough place to be because I'm mixed race, and um, it, I think it's less taboo now or less uncomfortable now, um, but when I was a kid, it was really difficult and challenging. So my early church experience was not great. And then uh, my parents separated in 87. I can make this quick. I'm not going to give you the 40 years of story, but um, <laughs> we've my, got time. <laughs> my Tell parents separated in 87 and my dad um, was in the military and the um, base, somebody, the person that was in charge of the base was an Episcopalian. And so he always made sure that there was an Episcopal chaplain on base. And um, the chaplain assigned to the hospital where my dad worked um, was the Episcopal chaplain. And so he started doing um, pastoral counseling for my dad and my dad became an Episcopalian. And um, and so that became kind of the place where I fit in. Um, and so um, my dad started his process towards the priesthood when um, he retired in 89. So I was going into sixth grade and, um, and so I watched that journey with him and he, he had to graduate from college before he could go to seminary. So he graduated from college in 95. He waited a year for me to graduate from high school. And then he went to seminary. Um, and so I always say home left me. Um, but, um, he went off to seminary. I went to college, um, and sort of mid college, I started to feel this, um, uh, it's, it sounds weird when you say it out loud, but I started to feel this, like, get ready, this feeling of get ready. And all, all through, 
um, I had this really formative thing happen when I was in eighth grade and all through I had planned to save the world as a journalist. And um, so I worked really hard. I actually did like some stuff for the Anchorage Daily News, um, which was a really big deal when I was um, in middle school and high school. Um, but Will you tell me what that formative thing was in eighth grade? Is that um, comfortable? Sure. It's, uh, it's kind of silly. It's um, anyway. Um, yeah. So I um, was in orchestra and um, there I grew up in Alaska where it's cold and um, behind, so the, behind the band room um, between the band room and the cafeteria was a larger, um, I don't know, entryway um, that people didn't really come and go out of. And so the smoking teachers would go into that room and smoke. And of course they would like, you know, stick their cigarettes out the door, but they were smoking in the room essentially. And all this smoke was coming through into the band room. And, um, you know, in my eighth grade way, I was outraged. And so, um, I wrote an editorial for our school newspaper, um, the Falcon flash and, um, about, um, these naughty teachers um, smoking in the, behind the band room and um, our principal um, pulled it before the story ran. And um, I was outraged just, you know, in that out the way that a middle school can be, you know? Um, and so <laughs> I sent it to the Anchorage daily news and um, yeah. a gal at the Anchorage daily news picked it up because that's pretty exciting and salacious. I don't know. We're a small town. Yeah. And, um, and so like two weeks after justice and right. Yes. Um, and so like two weeks after school got out, I was on the front page of the Anchorage daily news holding my Falcon flash. And, um, and I just, I got, I understood very quickly the power of the media and, um, and became convinced that that was a way that I could really change the world, that I could make the world a better place. And so that was it. That was my trajectory from eighth grade on that I was going to go and work in newspapers. And, um, and so mid college, college was a tough time. Um, moving to Seattle was really tough, big city, small city, big city stuff and all of that. So, um, I wasn't doing great in college. Um, I'd been this really achieving high schooler and, I was not in college. And so anyway, mid college, I started feeling this like get ready feeling. And, um, and I didn't know for what, and I felt a lot of, I I spent a lot of time in prayer thinking for what, for what. And um, right after I moved to Seattle, I started going to, I tried one Episcopal church and um, it was a really big church. And it turned out, I found out later that they had um, Curcio that Sunday. So it was like double the normal congregation (laughs) that was usually there. But when I went, I was just overwhelmed by all it was, it was a man's Curcio or men's Curcio. So there were just, (laughs) it felt like hundreds of men walking around the sanctuary and they did this really weird thing where they went and gave every, every woman a rose, I think, or something. And Hmm. it was just all around very strange. And I thought, well, nope, it's, we're good. I don't need to go to church and that doesn't need to be a thing for me. Um, and then, and then, you know, loneliness and all that. And I thought, all right, I'll go, I'll go, I'll check it out. I'll, I'll try another church. And so I tried another church and, um, (laughs) the, the first Sunday there, um, when I walked in, the priest was getting ready, doing whatever he was doing. And, um, and he said, 
you're new here. And I, I mean, you know, 19 years old, of course I would, you know, like, of course I stood out, but you know, um, he said, you're new here. What's your name? And, and I told him, you know, my name is Shanna. And, um, and when he went to give me communion that day, he, he said my name when he gave me communion and, um, and it was knee buckling. I mean, it was just this huge moment when I felt so lost in this really big city and, um, with all these people I didn't know and at this university, it was giant and, um, and father Bob remembered my name. And so I became a closet Christian. Um, I went to the early service so that I could go to church and be home before my roommates woke up. So nobody knew mm. that I was going to church. Um, cause it felt like a really weird thing for I had a 19, 20 year old to be doing. And, um, even though you'd grown up in, Yes. And my dad was in seminary. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, on the drive home or maybe when I got home, I can't remember if I had a cell phone back then. But, you know, I'd tell my dad, oh, this is what he preached about. And it was awful or, you know, whatever. This is great. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, we'd have this big theological conversation on the way home. And then I'd get home and pretend like I was hungover like everyone else. <laughs> I don't know. It was a weird thing. But um, peer pressure. <laughs> so weird. Um, so I. Um, Right before I graduated from college, I, my dad, um, my dad graduated from seminary and moved out to see in the, the Seattle area. And, um, and I was having a tough time, you know, with like affording rent and all that. And he said, why don't you move in with me? And so I did, I moved back in with my dad or moved in with my dad and he took a parish, um, in, um, just North of Seattle. And so, um, I went there, I became part of the congregation and I kept feeling this like, something. I don't know what something. And, um, right before I graduated from college, um, we had this thing where we had kids from the or adults, I don't know, people from the drama, um, department come and they, they were pretending it was a reporting class and they were pretending to be different people around a school shooting. Um, this was a school shooting, I think in Arkansas. Um, and so it was a specific story where they could um, actually draw on the stories around. Um, and one of the people or one of the scenarios was um, this man who came to the, um, to the school for his wife um, who was a teacher. And, um, and we knew that the wife was dead, but he didn't know the wife was dead. Um, and so we were supposed to run up and interview him. And I was outraged. So I said, this is, re- I mean, you don't interview this man. You don't, you, you let him go and find out and, and deal with the horror of this moment. You have nothing to say. There's nothing that's important enough to run up and interview this man. Um, (laughs) Of course, that's not how my reporting professor saw it. Um, So um, at that point I was in, I think the last quarter of my college years. And I thought, there's no way I'm changing my major and doing anything else at this point. So, um, I graduated in 2000 and then, um, I went to work for, um, a local, a small daily newspaper and, um, I made 10 cents more an hour than I was making at UPS as a package handler. Um, but, and, and that was only because I was a copy editor and copy editors had to work at night. And so I got a 10 cent an hour bonus for working evenings. Um, but nonetheless, I went and worked and, um, and it was really interesting and hard work. Um, the, 
there was a, the big sort of final thing for me, even as I struggled with this was um, that I feel like I'm going on and on. So feel free to edit at some point. Um, but um, the big final thing for me in newspapers was that there was this man who had been running for office and he and his wife went through this really big public divorce. Um, and um, in the course of this divorce, she accused him of molesting their daughter, like a 13 year old girl. And, um, and so we'd been running stories about, he was a local, like he was running from our base, our area. And, um, and so we were running almost daily stories about this guy molesting his daughter and, and the, the court proceedings and all of that. And, um, the wife had moved out to the islands, So she wasn't seeing our newspaper, but she came back for one of the court cases and saw on the front page, this story about her husband molesting their daughter. And, um, and she was so mad. And I remember her coming into the newsroom to talk to um, the chief of the newsroom and just, I mean, you could, you couldn't hear her, but you could see her in there just really shaking her arms at him and saying, you know, this is my 13 year old daughter and you're identifying her and this is horrifying and how dare you. And, you know, I, my, my daughter's friends all know this story, this deeply personal and painful story. And, um, and so we had a conversation within the newsroom about it. And I said, this is there. She's totally right. She's totally right. We have this policy of not identifying the victims of sexual crimes and we're doing it every day and we're doing it only with people who know this family. Right. I mean, we're not naming her, but we're saying so-and-so's daughter and only the people who know that family know that daughter. Right. Um, and it doesn't make it any worse um, for him. I guess it does, but I don't think the story is any less important if he is molesting a minor than if he's molesting his daughter. Um, and if we can give this daughter some protection, um, we ought to do that um, because it's still a really important story if he's molesting a 13 year old. Um, mm -hmm. So um, we had a big conversation about it and nothing much came of it. Um, and very shortly after that, um, there was a man who broke into his um, estranged wife's um, house and um, committed a sexual crime on her. And, um, and there again, we reported his name and that he'd done this and that it was his wife. And, you know, it was like, this is, you're identifying this woman. So anyway, I was really disillusioned. Um, and so I went into marketing um, where I could make more money. And um, I was, I was fairly new um, and um, I was a giant brat. Like <laughs> I could have been a much better employee, but um, I really disliked my boss. And, um, and I had a group of women around me who sort of encouraged my, um, my misbehavior. And so I was a giant brat. Um, and um, around that time, my dad's friend graduated from seminary and he came out um, to Seattle and he was the ethnic missioner for the diocese of Olympia. And, um, and he knew that I was Asian, half Asian. Um, and most people didn't, most people didn't pick that out. Um, and most people still don't pick it out. Um, and so anyway, Jerry, um, <laughs> was amazing. Um, he calls me up and he says, 
my dad kind of knew this, this feeling that I had. Um, and in my disillusion at um, not being able to save the world as a journalist um, and, and feeling like I want to do something bigger than marketing. And, um, and so Jerry calls me up and he says, Hey, I'm doing this um, discernment weekend for people of color. And I'm like, Oh, Jerry, I'm not of color. Like, are you, are you kidding me? I mean, you know, ha ha ha. But um, nobody at the grocery store is looking at me and thinking, Hey, she's half Asian. And so um, at first I was like, no, no. And then I thought about it and I thought, Oh my gosh, who is going to go to this thing? Uh, who wants to go to a discernment weekend for people of color in the Episcopal church? There's no people of color in the Episcopal church. Right. And so I started thinking about it and I really like Jerry and it's like, all right, I'll go, I'll go for Jerry. Right. Not for me, but for Jerry. And, um, so we went and, um, it was this really, um, lovely former convent in Issaquah and, um, and I went and I had no cell service and, you know, it was just in this place. And, um, one afternoon, one of the things that we did was they just gave us time off. And so, you know, we had, the, there were, there were almost 30 people at this thing. Like Jerry would have been just fine if I had not showed up, but, um, I did not know that. And so, um, they gave us some time, like a couple hours and I went and sat in my room and, um, there was this moment when I just knew, um, I just knew it was like, it was like the sky cracked open and, for the first time in my life, I could feel and hear the Holy Spirit in a really defined way calling me to the priesthood. Um, and my response was, oh my gosh, no, thank you. Um, and I sat in my room and well, I... You and I, Jonah and Jeremiah and all the rest. Right, right. I mean, luckily I didn't end up in the, in the belly of a whale, um, but, um, or in a lion's den. Um, but, um, I, I said to God, listen, you know, my dad is single and he is getting no dates and (laughs) he's older. So whatever, but I am in my early twenties and I expect to be married and I know how that works out for clergy. So, um, no, thank you. And, um, also I swear a lot. And so also no, thank you. And, um, I at that point was in my early twenties and, you know, going out drinking and doing the things that early 20 people sometimes do. And, um, so again, no, thank you. Um, but it was clear, like I really knew without a doubt that this was that, that I was being called. Um, and so, uh, I went back to work and I shook my head and said, Ooh, really God, like, seriously, no, thank you. Um, and I sort of kept it to myself. And, um, that was the summer of 2001. And, um, and then September 11th happened. Um, and of course, you know, the world changed. Um, and, um, it was, um, it was a super anxious time for us culturally. And I think that I was causing my boss so much anxiety that it was just, she just had to get rid of me. Um, I I think anything that reduced the anxiety um, at that time, I think we all did. It was just a purging, like anything I can get rid of, I'm going to get rid of right now. 
And so I was, were you, uh, were you provoking her or did you, you just like <laughs> butted heads with her? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't know that I was provoking her, but, um, she wasn't giving me enough work. So I had taken her job and she'd moved up and, um, and she was having a hard time letting go of any of it. And so she wasn't giving me enough work, which meant that I had all this extra time to do, um, less than kind things. Like, um, I would make what turned out to be gifts, but they weren't a thing back then. Um, where I used PowerPoint to, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> It's really inappropriate stuff. Um, I was just being a big jerk about um, my boss. And um, I don't know that, that those things got around to her, but certainly, <laughs> oh. certainly she. Um, so anyway, um, I was laid off on September 12th and I spent pretty much all day that day taking my business cards and putting a push pin in them and um, wallpapering my cubicle with my business cards so that somebody had to go in there and take all the pins out and all my business cards out because I was such a jerk and so mad. Um, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so (laughs) I had been growing up to do, um, but, um, I don't know if you remember that time, but I certainly do. Um, which is that no one was hiring and, um, everyone, you know, I kind of like now everybody was freaked out and scared and, um, and so yeah. all the businesses were closing down and, um, or closing for a time. Um, and there was a whole lot of instability and anxiety culturally and societally. And, um, so I started temping and one of my, um, dreadful temping jobs was, um, it was like two days where I worked at this place, but, um, I, you know, it was just a, um, answer phones kind of job. And I get there and, um, it turned out that they had laid off all of their employees and people were coming in for their checks. And because I didn't know anybody, I had to make all of them show their ID. And, um, and they were just, you know, oh, they were so mad. I mean, it's just such an awful time for our country. Um, so I waited and waited and, um, I had just moved out of my dad's house and, um, and so, um, Jerry called me just to check in, how are things going? And, I said, Oh, Jerry, it's, it's so awful. I lost my job. And, um, and he said, Hey, why don't you come in? Why don't you come meet with me? And I said, okay. So I went to the Dowson offices because I had nothing better to do. And, um, while I was there, he, um, called over another person who worked there and he said, you know, we're just meeting and chatting. Um, but Jerry kind of knew what he was doing, I think. And so he called over, um, the diocesan provost and he said are you looking for a secretary right now and the other jerry said i am actually and um so two months after 9-11 i got a job um working at the diocesan offices and um and that's it was a moment when i (laughs) i felt god saying no I'm, i'm really serious about this i really expect you to go and do this um and once I agreed with God that I would do it, I felt the doors opening again. Like I was just there and waiting until I said, okay. And I made some conditions like, um, listen, I'm getting married someday because I expect to have children and I'm going to do that. Um, and I'm probably not going to stop swearing, but I can, I can rein that in. 
Um, and if anybody ever tells me I'm too young, I'm out. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to fight with any standing committees or any of that. Like this is, these are the things I'm willing to do. Um, and, um, we'll see God, we'll see. And, um, and no one ever told me I was too young and, um, and I probably was. Um, but, um, I started going through the process. I moved, um, churches so that I could have a sponsoring parish that was not my dad, uh, my dad's parish. Um, so where did you wind up? I went to St. George's in Lake city, which hmm. is, um, in the middle of just North of the university in Seattle. Um, it's a parish that doesn't, it's not there anymore or it's not, it's not St. George's anymore. Um, but, um, I ended up with the Reverend Anna Maria Carathu. I picked that church because of Anna Maria. Um, she was just larger than life. She was a woman of color. She was a uh, mixed race. Um, like I was, and, um, she, um, she taught me a whole lot about the priesthood. Um, and so after that, I went to Seabury. I visited three seminaries and, um, and (laughs) I only visited Seabury because, um, to make my dad happy. And, um, I wasn't going to go there because my dad had gone there and he had only graduated four years earlier. So, there we had a lot of the same professors. Um, so that was weird. Um, but I went there and I knew, um, the first night I knew that that's where I was called to be. Um, and so that's where I went and it was really good and really formative. And, um, I miss my seminary cause it was so good. Yeah. Seabreeze. No more, or is it? What is its status now? I can't quite figure. I haven't. I haven't really looked into it. I think that they're um, they are renewing themselves. They're Bexley Seabury now, and um, I believe that their MDiv program is all online now. But hmm. I don't know that for sure. Um, so they're trying. Um, it's it's a new time for seminaries, and it is. Uh, yeah. So. So you got ordained? I did, yeah. Um I um I was ordained in 2006 in June. Um and um I at the end of senior year everybody goes on a thousand interviews and um and so I went lots of places um for lots of interviewing. Um I had a weird experience in seminary um in the south and realized that um I would have a really tough time culturally in the South. Um, and, um, so I knew that that was not a place I was going to go, but I was young and, um, I didn't have any kids and, um, my fiance, um, wasn't real adhered to, um, a job so we could go. Um, so we interviewed in lots of places and, um, kind of at the 11th hour, I got this interview in California. Um, and I went and, um, there was lots of weird things just, um, communication wise. And so, um, we were driving away and I said, Oh, that's not it. <laughs> and then they offered me my job. There were two places that offered me jobs and, um, and there was one place that I really loved, but, um, they wanted me and my fiance to live apart for the summer until we got married in September. And, um, and, 
you know, my now husband, Ryan, um, Ryan and I looked at each other and we said, you know, here's the thing is that we can't unring that bell. So um, if it's a problem that we live together before we're married now, it will continue to be after um, we get married. I mean, there, it, staying living apart for three months doesn't change the fact that we've lived together for five years. So um, ultimately, we decided not to go there. Um, and we went to this other place. Um, and that was a really tough place. Um, it was a tough place to... Um, there were some really fantastic things that I learned there. Um, and those first years of, of ordained ministry, um, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but for me, it was really hard for me to get my head around um, being in church in a really, really different way. Um, and my seminary tried to prepare me for it. Um, but in some ways, it's kind of like parenthood. Like no matter what you read, it's really hard to imagine um, and to anticipate until you're there. Um, and so I spent two years in real struggle. <laughs> so what is that shift? Like if you were to talk to your pre-seminary self, or if you're talking to somebody who's listening to this podcast, who's thinking, I'm going to go to seminary one day because I'm called to be a priest. What can you say to like smooth that journey for them? Um, I think the biggest thing, um, the, the biggest thing that I could recommend for somebody is that they figure out how to, um, change, how to make their prayer life nimble, um, how to, how to make it flexible. Um, I am one of the things that, um, really, probably the thing that was the hardest about celebrating for me was um, that as a lay person, my prayer time and the time when I felt most connected to God was right after communion, when I returned to my pew and waited for other people to receive communion. Um, and I said my prayers of Thanksgiving and all of that, um, that time, whatever that is, you know, two minutes or whatever it is, that moment was so fundamental to my prayer life. Um, and so when I started working during that time, um, I, I felt really adrift, um, that my prayer life was unmoored and, um, and lost. Um, and then, you know, our seminaries don't do a very good job of preparing people for, um, nonprofit management. And, mm. uh, and I, I had a romantic view of what it would be like and not entirely because my dad is a priest and I saw the beginning of his priesthood. Um, but I had kind of a romantic view of what the priesthood would be. Um, and it did not include, um, so much, um, people management and finance management and meetings and, um, that's not how I imagined my priesthood would be. So when I got there and realized, and that parish um, was a cardinal parish. So it was a big parish um, and had lots of meetings and lots of um, infrastructure. Um, that was a shock and um, really, really hard transition. Um, yeah. I think one of the toughest things for me was that before I went to seminary, I would sit in church 
and I would express an opinion, and it was just my opinion. And then after I got ordained, I realized that if I expressed an opinion, people were looking at me like I was speaking like on behalf of God, <laughs> or at least on behalf of the church. And so I realized that I needed to be very careful about what I said, because um, I wasn't just... It wasn't just like Chris, the guy from down the street. Was, yeah. Which is pretty intimidating, that level of responsibility. Um, and I think that was one of the, the good things about, um, or I don't know, maybe it wasn't, but one of the good things about starting out as a curate, um, as an associate, um, I was the third priest on staff there. Hmm. So um, I could get away with a lot of nonsense. Um, the people were... Um, they were very kind um, and I was very young and there was a certain sense of like patting me on the head, like, um, Oh, isn't that precious? Um, So I could say a whole lot um, because, because there were real priests there, right? There were (laughs) priests who had been priests for a long time. And so um, everyone understood that I was finding my way. How did you find your own spiritual life? Um, changing during that during seminary in those first few years. So seminary was fantastic. I mean, it, for me to be with a bunch of people who had been thinking and interested in the things that I was thinking and interested about, um, working through the challenges of being um, with these people all the time um, at Seabury, <laughs> we had the first year and a half. We had all all of our classes together. Um, and we all took the same classes. Um, so we spent a whole lot of time with each other and we heard (laughs) a whole lot of the same story over and over and over again. Um, so, um, but learning how to be with people like that, um, really intensely and people that I really grew to love. Um, and, and I felt like seminary was a real affirming time, like that I had found my place. Um, and that I was headed in the right direction um, over and over and over again. Like that was just how I felt all the way through. Um, And so um, when I started ministry, um, it felt like out of nowhere, I hit a brick wall. I mean, just like I didn't see it coming. And all of a sudden I was going at 60 miles an hour and I just hit this this giant wall where I couldn't pray and I couldn't feel God. And I was so hurt and mad and I expected so much from the church that I felt like the church owed me for spending time and money to be in seminary. And then, um, did not, the church did not provide, um, and I sought help from, um, from, from bishops, um, for vocational assistance, um, and, um, really people cared, but not enough to, I don't know, they didn't have enough influence maybe, or didn't think they had enough. I'm not sure, but I didn't get the kind of support that I thought I would. And so, um, all of that was really emptying and there was very little to refill the tank. Um, so I had a spiritual director, um, and, um, I love him. I loved him. He was wonderful. Um, and, um, he just listened, um, and he helped 
he helped me. Um, I mean, mostly what I needed at that point because I was aching and um, so, so I was having such a hard time. Um, so mostly what I needed was someone to listen, but he was able to listen to the things I said and give me just little pivots. Um, like maybe try this thing, you know, I've listened to everything you've said, maybe try this one thing. And, um, and it was one of the things that I was allowed to leave my job for. So this was something that, um, it was just, he was in Berkeley, which was, um, depending on traffic an hour away. So I would get two hours plus an hour with him. So there was so much prayer that could happen in this time when I felt so lost and empty. Um, and through my conversations with him, I found my way back to a different kind of prayer life. Um, and I'm not sure it's ever been the same, but, um, but it's new and different. And, um, and that's not, that's, um, that's what growth is about, right? Uh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, we're never the same, right? So I think growth is letting our souls keep pace with the, the inevitable change. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like the willing part of our lives going along with the stuff that changes, whether we want it to or not. Because it sounds like when you were in your early 20s, you were kind of a brat. So do you, are, are you still <laughs> that way? Have, has that softened? Are you um, mellower in some ways? Or do you still kind of have this streak? I think both. I, I, I cert- like, um, I'm working really hard on giving people grace these days. That's That's been my um, my really big focus, um, spiritually, um, is just to recognize that, um, where people are in different, different things. So giving people a whole lot of grace these days, um, I'm, I'm not sure that that comes naturally to me. I don't know if it comes naturally to others, but it doesn't come naturally to me. So, um, it's something I have to work on. Um, but I spend, I spend a lot more time thinking about how things will affect other people. Um, and, um, and trying to, if I'm going to be a brat and I try not to be, um, but if I'm going to, to keep it inside, <laughs> to at least recognize that it's inappropriate, um, so that I can move past it and act and think differently. My sense is that there's, that it's very hard to do t- these two things at the same time. It's very hard to be somebody who's who's kind of intuitively connected to to a sense of justice and also to be a person who very easily gives grace and patience and slack to people. Because if you're really committed to justice, to kind of the, an awareness of fairness and equality and liberty and um, the well-being of everybody that mm-hmm. anybody who stands in the way of that mm-hmm. is going to feel almost like an enemy, you know, that needs to be um, like somebody who's causing trouble. <laughs> and it's very hard to, um, to cultivate both of those at the same time, or at least I hear that again and again, the people that I know are kind of fit into one or the other, the people who are really good at giving people, um, grace and patience to 
um, whoever they run into mm-hmm. are also kind of people who aren't like they're, you know, maybe committed to justice, mm-hmm. but they're not really on the, on the front lines mm-hmm. always. Um, and yeah, it's I think it's really hard to synthesize those two. And mm-hmm. I, I, I can't think of, you know, I could probably go through some of my books of saints and find a few of them, but it's <laughs> like, so probably the church needs both kinds of people. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. And, and I think both kinds of people need to work towards each other um, mm. to a certain degree. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, as a mixed race person, I've always felt I'm never one or the other. I'm um, mm-hmm. and so I've always, I've never worried about doing what's expected because I am unexpected. Um, I, I don't fit this. Um, but, um, but that was a thing too. When I started out, there weren't a lot of young women clergy and, um, and so just my existence, just my existence was unexpected and weird. And, Hmm. um, and so in that way it was, uh, like I, I couldn't, I couldn't not be shocking or, um, I could, I could only be shocking. Right. I could only be like, what? Young women, <laughs> you're not old enough to be a priest and you're not man enough to be a priest. Right. So I guess you just kind of embrace that role. Like if you're, if you're going to be breaking through people's assumptions left, right and center anyway, you mm-hmm. might as well um, take on that, that function in people's lives. It's not just might as well. It's, um, it's, it's not, there's no other option. Um, Mm. and, and you can recede into it and, and do it as little as possible, or you can just, um, but you're, it's always, um, I'm getting older and (laughs) this will not always be a thing. And there are a lot more young women clergy, um, and there are more people of color, um, doing ministry, um, although not enough. Um, but, um, there will come a day when I'm I'm not um, when I might have a choice, but right now I don't think I have a choice. I'm just mm-hmm. here, and um, and um, you're right. Like I, I'm, I can embrace it or I cannot. But um, but my existence in this space is, you know, weird. So how'd you get from California to Oregon? So um, my California. Um, uh, associate ministry was um, really challenging. It was not a good fit. Um, my boss and I were not a good match. Um, and um, in 2008, when everything tanked, um, I was uh, I was seven months pregnant in October, and um, and that's really when everything was um, when we were realizing how bad everything was. Um, and, um, I think again, it was, um, somewhat, uh, like, you know, getting rid of the things that caused anxiety in the system, um, when there was a lot of anxiety culturally and systemically. Um, and, um, I, I don't know. Um, I do feel a little bit like it was an opportunity for, um, my boss to let go of me, um, when, um, we were not a good match and not a good fit. Um, so it was kind of a variety of things, but, um, I lost my job 
on October 23rd of 2008. Um, and, um, and then um, my husband lost his job on December 21st, I think, um, of that year. And um, <laughs> it was um, horrible. Um, and so he lost his job. I lost my job. And um, I didn't want to, um, I basically lost my health insurance as well. Um, but I didn't want to switch doctors and all of that in the middle of my pregnancy when I knew that, um, that my son was going to be born in January. And so, um, we stayed there for, um, another two months. So I had, my son was born on the 31st of January. And then, um, right when Ryan lost his job, um, my husband, um, we called his sister. We, I mean, we called family cause it's what you do when, when you're struggling and, um, and it, without, without taking a breath, his sister said, do you need a place to be? And, um, and Ryan said, probably. Um, and so after we had our son, then, um, we had, (laughs) we had, um, we're modern family. So we had four, four parent sets at that point. And so, um, my mom came, um, a week after he was born. And then two weeks after he was born, Ryan's mom came and three weeks after Killian was born, um, Ryan's dad came and the fourth week we, um, so Ryan's dad helped to pack us up. And then, um, on February 27th or something, we left, um, California and moved in with Ryan's sister in Oregon. Um, and then we waited, um, and I did supply work and, um, I was really angry with the church and, um, that year for Lent, I said, I've given up enough God, um, <laughs> through gritted teeth. And, um, and then, um, I found my way to St. Edward's, um, as a supply gig The um, it just happened that the Bishop who was here, um, had been the assistant Bishop in Olympia when I was working in the diocese of Olympia. And he was a lovely man. And, um, when I would send my Ember Day letters, um, in seminary, um, our bishop was um, very busy. And so I would send that, send it to both bishops and um, Sandy Hampton always replied. Um, and he didn't always agree with me. He wasn't always, um, it wasn't always like a grandfatherly hug back. Um, yeah. But he always, always replied. Um, like for instance, he did not think it was a good idea for me and my boyfriend to live together. Um when I was in seminary, um, he let me know, um, that my dad could probably do a pretty quick wedding if, (laughs) if that's what we wanted to do. So, um, anyway, um, he (laughs) became the assistant bishop in Oregon after the last bishop, well, whatever, Bishop Eddie before, after he left, um, in a really uh, not great way. Um, so Bishop Hampton was here and I came and I called him and I said, oh my gosh, I'm here. And um, so he sent me out on a couple of interviews and, um, or in a, to a couple of places and St. Edward's was a place that I went and supplied before they were ready to take names. And, um, and I went there, I think in May and, um, I was celebrating the Eucharist. Um, I had, the deacon had set the table and I was waiting for the, um, the offertory to finish. And so I was just standing behind the altar and I looked down the aisle at all of these people. And it was, um, it was very clear that 
um, I was still called to be a priest um, because I had not been sure. Um, and that God would find me a place in the church um, when I really wasn't sure that that was going to happen again. Um, and um, when they started taking names, I put my name in and um, I ended up there. And it, it's been, it was very clearly a place I was called to. So how long have you been there now? Just over 10 years. Okay. Yeah. The longest job I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite part of your ministry? Uh, the people, the pastoral care, the interaction with people, um, the, the space I get to fill um, in people's lives. Um, I, I, it's, I get to pe- be with people in the best moments of their life and the worst moments of their lives. And, um, and that's such a sacred and holy place. Um, and, um, I really, um, it feels like the place I'm called to be. Um, and, you know, there's some other stuff like, you know, the, the work that I get to do around justice and, and helping push society um, and push the church toward being better. Um, and that stuff is really important and feels that's the harder lift of being a priest, but it's still a really important part of who I am and what I do. Um, but um, the easy stuff, the cup filling stuff is being with people, the people that I love so much. So any words of advice for anyone following in your footsteps? Find people who will be honest with you. Um, find, find people who can be honest with themselves so that they can be honest with you. Um, find the people who are elated about ministry and for whom every day is a gift and a joy and find the people who are struggling, um, not the people who are t- totally burned out and hating the church, because that that can be um, a real, um, that can really drag you down. Um, but find the people who are struggling and listen to their story um, and, um, and try to find the middle path um, of your call. And learn how to pray nimbly. Learn how to pray nimbly. How do you learn that? How do you learn how to pray nimbly? Just in terms of the forms of prayer that you use or the the flexibility in in knowing when to pray and how to pray and um so think about it in terms of investments, right? If you put all your money in shares of Apple and Apple goes belly up, you've lost all of your money. Um, so if you put your entire prayer life in the two minutes after communion, um, when you lose that two minutes because you're working and distributing communion, um, it is hard not to lose it all. Um, hmm. So find places more than one where you find deep abiding connection with God 
Um, and you won't always find them there. I mean, it, it, if you find a trail where you can hike, where you feel really close to God, that may not always be so. But if you can find um, a place where you can hike and find God, and you can find church places where you can find God, and you find people whom you can pray with, and people in whom you find God, um, then your prayer life will be flexible enough that if one of your um, primary sources of prayer dries up, um, and, and that can happen whether or not there's a change, right? Like sometimes there's a place that really feeds you and you go back and it doesn't, it's not there anymore. And there's no real explanation except that it's just not there anymore. Um, But if you have a bunch of things and places where you can find connection with God, um, then you've always got something to turn to if one of them dries up. So diversify your prayer portfolio. I like that. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I look forward to your book about how to do that at some point. (laughs) All right. The final question is uh, the one about your pop culture recommendation. What are, uh, what do you have for us to help us blow off steam as we're all quarantined for these months on end? Um, I, you know what? I just watched, um, I just binged the whole season of never have I ever. Um, it is about a teenage girl going through teenage girl stuff. Um, and, um, and it is, it is candy. I mean, it's just, there's, there's a little bit of substance. So maybe a granola bar, but, um, (laughs) there's a little (laughs) bit of substance and it's mostly just joy and, um, (laughs) and easy. What is, is, Netflix, Hulu. Yeah, it's a Netflix okay. show. All right, I'll check it out. Shanna, thank you for talking to me. It's good to hear your life story. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, I look forward to you editing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was all good. Well, thank you. thank you again for listening to my conversation with Shanna. If you'd like to get in touch with her, be sure to look in the show notes for links. You can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Apple Tree Pods. And on Facebook, there's a page for Apple Tree Podcasts. Feel free to like and subscribe and review and share this with anyone who might be interested. You can also find out about my other podcast that we're producing at the moment, which is called Notes from Norwich, where I join two of my friends to read through Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. Bye for now.